Lord, we come to you today thankful, Lord, for your word. Thankful, Lord, that you have breathed out um, in the Gospels, in particular the Gospel of John, many episodes where we see uh, Christ interacting with people. And Lord, you've given us those episodes so that we can not only see what Jesus does, but also hear from him. And Lord, in, in taking all those things together, and as the Holy Spirit gives life to those things, Lord, may they shape our walk with you. May they draw us, Lord, to see you afresh. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? And what we are not, would you make us? And what we have not, Lord, would you give us? And allow me, as your messenger today, Lord, to be faithful to proclaim your gospel, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, this morning, I want to let you know that there are two kinds of people in this auditorium. Two groups. There's the, the takeoffs and the leave-ons. The takeoffs are those who, when they enter their home, take off their shoes. And then there's the leave-ons, those who, when they enter their home, don't take off their shoes. And I'm sure you've been to homes where people practice one or the other. When I was a youth pastor in Buffalo, New York, I also was in charge of the singles ministry there. And there was a man by the name of Paul. And Paul so eagerly wanted to connect with the young people um, of the church. And so I sat down with him, and I started to talk with him. And he was complaining because he just didn't seem to be getting too far with trying to reach out and build relationships and friendships and doing things with people. And he said, you know, so I suggested to him, well, why don't you just invite some people over to your home and you can have a meal and, you know, have some time, play some games or watch a movie and stuff like that. He says, I've tried that before, but it hasn't gone well. And I said, well, what's the problem? What was the issue? He says, when people came to my house, they wouldn't take their shoes off. And so it was a bad experience. See, for him, he was an uber neat freak. All right? I mean, he just focused in on just be neat, and you had to take your shoes off. And I said, well, listen, I tell you what, when I come over to your house, I will take my shoes off, and we can sit down, and we can share a meal, we can do something together. And so he said, okay. So I came over to his house, and I took my shoes off, and I was so afraid that I would actually leave dents in his carpet, all right? I was so concerned because, I mean, he just panicked all these little things. And it's amazing how something so small as either taking your shoes off or not taking your shoes off can have so much effect on someone. And then I had the privilege of going to Russia. And one of the things I learned about Russia or Slavic people is that they are slipper people. Now, it makes a lot of sense, especially if you're in a snow kind of a context. When you come into someone's home and you're, you've been walking in the snow and you've been walking in the mud, you don't want to kind of traipse all that stuff into the house. And so as soon as you come in, you take your shoes off and there's like a whole rack of slippers. In other words, they're expecting lots of people to come over. So there's always way more than the people that live in the house, right? Because when you come in, 
You take your shoes off, the snow's there, the, you know, it's been raining, the mud's there, and when you get in, you put those slippers on and you can not bring all that junk into the house. It makes total sense. Now, this is all backdrop really for our passage because we're coming to a, a, a passage that talks about the practice of foot washing. And in the context of Jesus' day, this was the cultural norm of the day. This wasn't unusual. This was everyday practice in the homes of people. But for us, it's somewhat of a foreign idea, um, especially in our kind of affluent American culture. We might take our shoes off, but not necessarily for the same reasons. But in those days, it was a basic practice of the culture. Why? because the streets were dirty and they were dusty. And when people came, their feet were usually only covered by like sandals. And so there was a lot of dirt and grime that got into the feet. And of course, in our culture, we do take our shoes off when we enter someone's home, typically. And if the, in the Judean culture, though, if, if you took your sandals off, there would be a servant who would come and they would wash your feet. The, the, your host wouldn't do it, there was someone else who would do it. And if they had slaves, they would have the slaves do that. And if it was a Gentile slave, it, that job was given to them because it was considered one of the lowliest tasks that you could be involved in. Now, the example that Jesus gives in this passage has often been interpreted by some to be a ceremony which should be on par with things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. But upon closer inspection, friends, what Jesus is modeling in this text and the parallel accounts of the Gospels is not ceremonial, but attitudinal. In including this account in the Gospels, John is not intending to teach us another ritual or another ordinance, but for us to learn something about the heart of Jesus the suffering servant who came to this earth in an act of love to draw us into his family. Now, if you see the title of the sermon, it's born to die. And you might still be asking yourself the question, then why are we in a foot washing passage? It doesn't seem to connect. Oh, but friends, it does. And you will see this as we press on. My proposition this morning is this, Jesus came to die so that we might live like him. Jesus came to die so that we might live like him. With that in mind, this section about foot washing will ultimately point to the fact that Jesus had come to die. And there are three foot washing lessons that we are going to learn that are going to drive this point home. One will be about love, one will be about life, one will be about living. But before we get there, there is a backdrop here to our text. And you always got to study a passage in its context. What is going on here in chapter 13 of John's Gospel? Understanding that will help us see this text, and it will be magnified in our eyes. So let me walk you back to John chapter 13. 2 and verse 4. Turn your Bibles, if you would, back there. We're going to walk through a few passages here. It's not going to be up on the screen. John chapter 2, verse 4. This is the wedding of Cana. And in this passage, Jesus says, in response to um, his mother, my hour has not 
yet come. Turn to John chapter 5 and verse 25. Again, Jesus is speaking. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So there's an hour coming for the people, but again, his hour has yet to come. Chapter 7, verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come yet. John chapter 8 and verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Then chapter 12 and verse 23, And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We go from it, it is not yet the time for the hour. Now the hour has come. It's it's here. Chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. He's praying now. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So this motif that John uses, this image, this description, the hour is driving through John's gospel, as many themes do. This theme now finds its kind of focal point in chapter 13, verse 1. Let's read it. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So the beginning of this hour starts here in chapter 13, verse 1. Turn over, if you would, to chapter 19, verse 30. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And what he says on that cross ultimately is this. It is finished. (laughs) His hour of suffering and service is finished. So in this one day time from chapter 13 verse 1 to chapter 19 verse 30, we have this hour taking place. All that is in there in this time is the hour of Jesus' suffering and death. But chapter 13 marks it off. And how then does chapter 13 begin after verse 1? Well, it's this whole foot-washing scenario. This foot-washing scene. And I want you first of all to notice the love that comes from Jesus. The love that comes from Jesus. Here is the, the setting of these few verses. We have Jesus' departure We have Jesus' betrayal. We have Jesus' garments all talked about in in these few verses here. And if you want to put it all into one sentence, chapter uh, chapter 13, 1 through 5, here's the central sentence. Now, before the feast of Passover, during supper, Jesus rose to wash his disciples' feet. It was before the Passover feast. Look at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, The hour of Jesus' death and and exaltation was near. His time to depart was now. And here we are introduced to what motivates Jesus concerning his children. It is his love. 
But what can we learn about the love of Jesus from this passage? Just three things. First of all, it's an exclusive love. Again, notice in verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved his own. Notice this is different than John 3.16. For God so loved, what? The world. Here now, it's Jesus loved his own. So you have this subset, this exclusive subset of his own. These are the ones who have been taken out of the world. These are his sheep who hear his voice. They are those who have been satisfied by the bread of life. They are those who thirst, whose thirst has been quenched by the rivers of living water, whose lives have been eternally changed by the light of the world. They are those who have come out of blindness and now can see. They are those who have come out of darkness and are experiencing light. These are the ones who truly believe. They are the objects of his unique love. He loved his own. It's an exclusive love. Secondly, it's an extensive love. Jesus loved them to the end. The Greek word end here is telos. And it means perfection. It means completeness. and signifies that Jesus loves his own with the fullest measure of love. He loves them to the end. Well, first of all, his end speaks of, of loving, uh, uh, his love extending to the end of his life, to that point where he says, to Talisai, it is finished. He loves them to the disciples' end as they live their lives, as they continue on serving him while he's gone. And he loves them even to that point where they are glorified with coming home and being with him in heaven. And then there's the very end, the end of ends, without end, forever. He loved them to the end. Friends, if you're a child of God, he loves you exclusively and he loves you to the end. But there's another part of this love. It's an expressive love. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He expresses his love by pausing during that supper and washing his disciples' feet. Look at verse 2 and 3. During supper... When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, what does Jesus clearly know here? He knows that the devil is at work through Judas to betray him. He knows that he has been given all things by his Father, and he knows that it is time to depart. In other words, to go to his death. So he now stoops to wash his disciples' feet. Hear this. The one whose Father had put all things into his hand turns to his disciples with a towel and a basin. Here we have a picture of the servant of of Jesus. And John 
sorry, the servant that is Jesus, and John gives us six details of this loving humility. But he gives them to us in slow motion. You remember a number of years ago where these slow motion movies kind of were popular where there would be all this kind of action, and all of a sudden, boom, it would stop, and there's some guy who's kicking, and the person's body would go down, and it would all slow down. That's what's happening. In, even in the Greek language, it's slowing down. He's wanting us to see what Jesus is doing here. Notice the six details in freeze-frame footage. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. So this is Jesus moving from the role of of master now to the role of slave. Then he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Here we see love's expression for all of his disciples. And it is a picture of what is going on in the heart of the Savior as it was all born out of love for his disciples. One by one, he would go and he would wash their feet. One by one, having removed his garments and and, and now kneeling at their feet, he is washing and wiping the disciples' feet. And this is all explained by Philippians chapter 2 that we read this morning already. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was willing to let go of his privileges in heaven, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. There's the taking off of these royal robes and humbling himself now in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, this is what Jesus is doing with the foot washing. He is showing his disciples what he has come to do and what is yet to take place. This is not about foot washing per se. It's about the suffering that Jesus would have to accomplish. The humility of the one who created the universe now going to a cross. All kind of in picture form here through this foot washing. So out of love, Jesus came to die for his own. King of kings, the Lord of lords, willfully, lovingly, joyfully humbled himself to come and die. He came to love us to the end. What a magnificent love. And the camera has been showing us Jesus washing the disciples' feet. But now it zooms in to Jesus washing Peter's feet. And here we're going to see the life that is found in Jesus. Look, if you would, at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, you will not wash my feet. Now, Peter was used to telling Jesus what to do and getting himself into trouble. 
And his impulse and his passion are on display again. You can understand why Peter would respond this way. For Jesus the master, for Jesus the rabbi, for Jesus the one who had done so many things in front of them, he was not worthy to be the one who was washing someone's feet. But that's the paradox, isn't it? Verse 7, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Now this is a repeated theme. Afterward you will understand. In John chapter 2, when Jesus speaks about destroying and rebuilding the temple, how do they respond? Well, eventually, John chapter 2, verse 22, John lets us know. He says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. They didn't understand it then. But when Jesus rose, they understood exactly what he was talking about. Then in chapter 12, after Jesus' triumphal entry, where John tells us that the disciples did not understand what he was, was truly going on. This is chapter 12, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Lord, you will not wash my feet. Well, you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. And after Jesus' death, well, after, you know, the question is afterwards. It's after his death, after his glorification, after his ascension. There's something in this foot washing that is pointing to the suffering that will take place on the cross. And Jesus is using this now to teach Peter and to confront Peter and to challenge us who are reading this to understand what Jesus is seeking to accomplish. Jesus is saying, to his disciples and to us, the way of love is the way of service. The way of love is the way of suffering and sacrifice. Something must take place for washing to be effective. And that something is Christ's death on the cross that pays the penalty for our sin so that man can be holy in God's sight. Now, Isaiah puts it this way. You know this very well. I think we touched on it last week. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. White as snow, like wool. Cleansed as a result of what Jesus has done on the cross. So Lord... You will not wash my feet. Secondly, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. I mean, Peter just keeps on going. He, he keeps on pressing on. Typical Peter, right? Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Those are no small words. The idea of sharing has really two purposes. It describes, first of all, our union with Christ. To share with Jesus is to participate completely with what he has come to do. It describes the fullness of our belief. We, we are 
not just kind of like half-heartedly believing. We are completely, wholeheartedly believing what Jesus Christ has done. We share with him what we believe he is he has done as the Christ, what he's done for us. He, that he's our master. He's our Lord. You can't say, well, Jesus, you're my Lord just a little bit. Got to be all in. And when we share with Christ, we're saying, you have us completely. We are all in. We know you. You know us. We are your sheep and you hear our voice. It also describes the cleansing that we have in Christ. And this is no partial cleansing. When, when, when the gospel is applied, it's not applied in a partial manner. It's not like I give you a little bit of help. He's saying you are clean. This is what he says, right? You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Then Peter says, Lord, Wash all of me. That's what he means here. Lord, not my feet only, but all my hands and my head. Now, Peter was thinking in terms of physical washing. But even though Peter may have missed the point, his words were theologically accurate. He was using the analogy of physical washing and cleansing to communicate a spiritual truth. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed, does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Now, children and teens, don't learn this verse of Scripture and quote it when your parents are saying, hey, you need to go take a shower. What is Jesus getting at here? See, physically, the one who is going to attend a dinner party in that context prepares himself by bathing, he is clean, but as he journeys to his destination on the dirty roads, he's picking up muck and dust and all that kind of stuff. So when he gets to the destination and he gets to that home, he may be clean essentially, but his feet are dirty. Maybe for us, the better analogy is washing hands. Right, last weekend, many of us, most of us attended one of the, the, you know, the gateway Christmas parties and we brought some side food or main dish with us. And before, you know, we were going, we were like, oh, I want to make sure I'm clean, I'm washed, I do my hair, I put you know, cologne on, that kind of stuff, dress appropriately. So I'm clean. And now I get in the car and I get to the destination. I get out of the car and I pull my casserole or my salad out and I'm walking into the house. And as I walk into the house, it's food, and so I take it to the kitchen. But before I actually start messing with stuff, where do I go? Or where should I go? I go to the sink. I go to the bathroom. What do I do? I wash my hands. Why? Because I want to get any germs or dirt off my hands that I've picked up on the way from my home to the destination. So washing of hands. It's the same concept. It's the same idea. So this physical image has spiritual implications. Those who have come to Jesus believing with a genuine heart are completely clean. They only need to wash their feet. So conversion is like taking a bath. And through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we are now made clean through His shed blood. Though our sins were as scarlet, they will become white as snow. But we still live our lives. 
And sin still creeps up and we still give into it. And so we have to come to God afresh and, and, and wash off that sin daily in the sense by washing our feet. Now friends, there's another way to kind of put this. Our union with Christ requires us taking a one-time bath. That's conversion. Our union with Christ. Our communion with Christ, or that would be our growing or living with Christ, requires ongoing foot washing. So for salvation, you take a bath. For sanctification, every day. You're washing your feet. You're washing your feet. And a a follower of Christ, someone who's genuinely pursuing Christ, is going to have a regular routine of that foot washing taking place in their life. They they want the, the, the water of the Word to wash them afresh. They've already been saved. They're already clean. But they're washing off now this residual of sin that happens with us. So this is the life that is found only in Jesus. It is the eternal and the abundant life given to those who believe who are his own. He says, and you are clean, this is end of verse 10, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. I was pondering this text. And I was thinking to myself, in our sentimental, mystical, spiritual world, not so much the church, but just the world out there, likes to be spiritual. They're actually satisfied with Jesus giving someone a foot wash as if that was the spiritual act in and of itself. In other words, if Jesus would simply touch me, if Jesus would simply do something to me, give me an experience, give me some help, give me something, you can fill in the blank. This is what they're after. To the neglect of what is truly going on. And that is something taking place in the heart. And how easy it is for man to take Christianity and to force Christianity into this box or into this mold called Christmas where we say the real kind of attitude of the season, the real reason for the season, the spirit of Christmas is helping and serving and loving All those things have their place. But if Christ does not die, and if you are not washed, it doesn't matter about any of those things. John makes sure that we see the theme of betrayal here. So we've seen the love that comes from Jesus. We've seen the life that is found in Jesus. These two realities are foundational now for the lesson that Jesus wants to teach his disciples. Love, life, and now number three, the living that is done for Jesus. Jesus, having donned humility and washed his disciples' feet, now returns his outer garments and resumes his place at the table. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? (laughs) 
Jesus' questions are far more penetrating than maybe we would give them credit. To grasp why Jesus is asking that question, it's helpful to glean from Luke's gospel what was happening at that table while this foot washing is taking place. Luke tells us, chapter 22, verse 24, and a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Isn't it just like us? God's trying to teach us something spiritual, and we're trying to pursue something that is sinful. In that very same moment, in that very same circumstance, Jesus goes to each disciple, washes their feet, and now they're arguing about who's the greatest among them. I'm surprised that Jesus doesn't say, I'm just starting afresh. I'm going to go find some new guys here. But he doesn't do that, does he? Disciples are arguing here. They're fighting among themselves, but none of them wants to serve. The cross is only a few hours, and Jesus is modeling that for them. And no one wants to pick up a towel. Jesus is saying, now that I have washed your feet, now that I have connected my love and your cleansing to the ultimate sacrifice of the cross, now that I have shown you how I have removed my heavenly garments and condescended to this earth and go to suffer on the cross, I want to ask you a question. Do you understand the way of love is the way of service? That's a question for us. Do you understand that the way of love is the way of service? Do you understand that the way of love is also the way of suffering or sacrifice? And that the greatest among you must be as one who serves. So Jesus continues, again, chapter 13, verse 13 and following. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Now the reality is the disciples would go out eventually and they would go taking the gospel with them. And as tradition tells us, most of them would be martyred for their faith, if not all of them. They would suffer in their service for the same gospel that Jesus came to accomplish on the cross. Verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. To be greatest is to serve like Jesus. So friends, this is a clarion call to all of God's children to live like Jesus. It's a very well-known story about a man named Samuel Logan Brengel. He was a Methodist minister um, in the United States who was very captivated by what was happening in London uh, with William Booth's Salvation Army. And so he made the journey across the pond and he went there and said, I am willing to serve. Now he was, he was kind of a, a, a well-known pastor of a, of a large church 
And he expected that when he got there that William Booth would say, yeah, come on in, I'll give you a kind of a place of, of leadership and stuff like that. But Booth said to Brengel, you have been your own boss too long. And in order to instill humility in Brengel, he set him to work cleaning the boots of the other trainees. And Brengel, of course, understandably said to himself, I have come all this way from where I was to where I am now to blacken boots. And as he began to do that, he began to think of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And he said, Lord, you wash their feet, I will blacken their boots. And eventually he would rise in leadership of the Salvation Army. But God had to do something in him before he could get there. And this is what Jesus is saying, verse 14. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So if we are to see ourselves as followers of Christ, there must be an attitude of humble service in our lives. We must be people of the towel, so to speak. We must be willing to wash one another's feet. We must be willing to blacken the boots of others. So what does that look like? Now just, just imagine, if you would please, Jesus going to each disciple and ask yourself the question, if you were doing this, would you want to wash this disciple's feet? Nathaniel, you find him in John 1, he is called the true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. It wouldn't be hard to wash his feet. <laughs> Andrew, always bringing people to Jesus. Would you blacken his boots? Probably. James and John, always arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Would you blacken their boots? You'd probably have a little bit more difficulty, wouldn't you? These knuckleheads, what do you think you're doing here? Peter, totally committed, and then at times he just goes AWOL. Would you blacken his boots? Would you wash his feet? Judas, the one who would betray Jesus, would you be willing to blacken his boots? Now what's shocking about this picture is that Jesus would humble himself and wash the feet of the disciples. But what's more shocking is that Jesus would wash the feet of the one who would betray him. If you and I had that knowledge, we might say, pass, right? I'm going to go to the next guy because I know what's in your heart. But Jesus doesn't do that. Even the one who's in process of betraying him, has it in his heart, has already communicated with the religious leadership. Jesus washes his feet. What kind of love would serve a person who was about to betray him? What kind of love suffers in order to go to a cross on our behalf? What kind of love endures mocking and scorn and a crown of thorns? Only the kind of love that Jesus has for his own. And it's that same love 
that he wants to see that drives us to blacken the boots of others. So where do we begin? Well, first of all, it begins in your own home. You're going to go home today, and you're going to look someone in the eye, and this is going to come back to you and say, my responsibility as a child of God is to serve this person. It's to blacken their boots. And I don't mean literally get your shoes out and start polishing the boots, but it's this idea of humble service. Love your family at your dinner table. Serve and keep serving, even when it is all you can do. When conflicts arise or children disobey, when heartaches are felt and discouragement settles in, when your plans are disrupted by others' inconsideration, when you must exercise a consequence for sinful behavior, when you are spent and you don't have any more to give, remember the cross. Remember Christ's suffering. Remember how He served us then and how His service then is serving us now. If Jesus can serve Judas, then you can certainly serve that member of your family whom you may not like at that particular point in time. Love your family, love your spouse, even when he or she is unlovely, forgetful, angry, impatient, serve, Wash, love, give, find some boots, and begin to blacken them. So it begins in your home. This attitude, this humility of love and service and sacrifice. But it continues into the body of Christ, doesn't it? When we hear of others' needs, and we have opportunity to give, maybe in the offering plate or in some other way, are we willing to do that? When a child is screaming and a parent is struggling, do you serve them by smiling and encouraging them? We teach our children or provide childcare when someone needs a ride to attend church or home group or Bible study. Are you willing to be that person that says, yes, I can do that. I'll help you. I want to see you make progress here. When the restrooms need cleaning and the floors need vacuuming, when the student ministry needs a home to meet in, when there's a meal train that's posted on Realm, when you are called upon to help out, but you really don't feel like it. Jesus' example drives us to contemplate the cross and the suffering he endured on that cross and the service that, that prepared him for that cross and then to serve someone else for God's glory. So it begins in the home, it goes into the church, then it extends out into your neighborhood, into your workplace, into your school, into your sports team, into your, your mom's groups. Friends, hear this. Don't stop proclaiming the gospel through your service in those places outside your home and your church. Society wants to, to quiet you down and say, you have no place bringing that here, but you're a child of God and there are ways that you can do that. And one of the ways that Jesus is modeling for us here is to serve others. 
It means that we love others around us because they are made in the image of God. doesn't matter what they look like, where they come from, how much money they have. They're made in the image of God. It means that we are looking for how we can serve others, not to be manipulative, but to genuinely express our love for them. So we're asking questions. It means that we genuinely care to listen to them as they talk about their struggles and their trouble so that we can respond in kindness and concern and ask them if we can pray for them. It means that we give up our time to help talk with them and ask further questions. It means that we go to God in prayer for their need, their struggles, and their trouble. Friends, Jesus came to die, and he knew that it would involve suffering. He knew it would involve sacrifice. He knew that it would involve real physical pain and agony. He knew that people would turn against him and that one in particular would betray him. He knew that he would be mocked, he would be scorned, he would be ridiculed by self-righteous religious leadership. But in that certain suffering, Jesus chose the path of service. Our society rightly promotes the right of the individual. But friends, don't mix up your right as an individual with the gospel call to serve. That's why in the gospel of Mark, Jesus is described in this way, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for Many. He served us through his suffering. Now let's just bring it all to a close here. And I want to go back to my proposition here. Jesus, first of all, came to die. This is a Christmas message that we must promote. We must embrace, we must recognize. Yes, we can, we can talk about the sentimentality of, of Jesus coming as a baby, but there's a reason why he came as a baby. We've already seen some of those things as to why he came ultimately to be the word, to restore worship, right? And now we re- realize he's come to die. And so there's many reasons But ultimately, he came to die on the cross. He came to atone for our sins. Yes, he was a great teacher. Yes, he had genuine compassion for the poor, for the sick, and for the possessed and the despised. Yes, he truly modeled uh, for us a glorious example for mankind to follow. But if that is all we focus on, to the neglect of his work on the cross, we are doomed to still be alienated from the Father. And without hope in this present world, that's why in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, we're told, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If Jesus simply came to this world to do good, we're, we're lost. We're not reconciled to the Father. If he came to be a good example, we're lost. He came to die. He had to die. And if he didn't die, his incarnation would be pointless and we would still be in our sins. So he came to die. Secondly, Jesus came to die that you might 
Live. The reason Jesus came to die that we might live is because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's the language that Paul uses in the book of Ephesians. The only way to wake up spiritually a dead person is through the life of the gospel. Christ gives us life through his death. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. What's up there on the screen? You can read it. Here's what we're told. Apostle Paul is speaking. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our desires in the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This was our condition. We're dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Jesus came to die so that you and I might live. If you're a child of God, you're no longer dead. (laughs) You're alive, and you're alive in Christ. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Because Jesus came to die that you might live like him. It's the call of the believer to pursue a life that is growing to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Christ's likeness is our daily goal. And from this text, it is marked by a life that is motivated by love that fleshes out in sacrificial service. To love like Jesus loved. To serve like Jesus served. To suffer or to sacrifice like Jesus suffered and sacrificed. But I want to draw your attention to verse 17. Here's what it says. If you know these things, blessed are you if you, what? Do them. Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, I'm telling you all of this. You know this now. But the blessing only comes if you do them. Jesus died and has given us life, but we're called to listen, to know, and to follow his example, and when that happens, our lives will be blessed. Now, don't backfill into that word blessed with material stuff. Instead, fill it with things like joy, contentment, purpose, peace, wisdom, strength, hope, confidence, satisfaction, assurance. These are the blessings that come when we are able to live our lives like Jesus. Friends, will you believe Jesus' words here? If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do you believe what he says? If you do, you're going to want to do them. You're going to want to begin to think of Life is an opportunity to serve 
an opportunity to pull out the towel or to blacken some boots, as an opportunity even to, to serve and sacrifice for the Lord in that way. Ultimately, so that you are glorifying with your life, and the byproduct of that is that God might use even your service as the means by which the gospel goes forward, and he is drawing people to himself. So friends, the next time you feel depressed, distressed, discouraged, or despondent, the next time you feel like throwing in the towel, do what Jesus did instead. Grab the towel, find some dirty feet to wash, and experience the blessing he promised. Jesus came to die so that you might live like him. Lord, help us today to learn from this encounter Jesus had with his disciples, where he demonstrates his humility, his love. He shows them what is about to take place for the rest of that day. Allow this, Lord, to be a challenge for us that we who are your children would be willing to pick up the towel, would be willing to wash some feet, would be willing to blacken some boots, would be willing to, to sacrifice of our time and our energy and our talents to serve others. And in that service, maybe even suffering because we are serving like your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those who do not know you, may they see, Lord, in this, this image, this motif, the fact that you left heaven. You set aside your royal garments and you came to this earth. You took upon yourself the form of man, took up, uh, upon yourself the, the form of a servant, and you, you, you walked this earth you struggled on this earth facing the things that we face, but ultimately, yes, you did good things. Yes, you healed people, but ultimately you died on a cross. You paid for our sin. You paid for their sin. And, and, and Lord, allow that person today who is here, who doesn't know you, maybe thinks they know you, they have an idea of you. Allow, Lord, this image and this, this presentation of the gospel out of the mouth of Jesus to show them the wonder and the beauty of what it means to be one of your children. Now, Lord, may we, in our celebration of this season, enjoy, Lord, all the things that come with it, the presence and the lights and the, the, the gatherings and all that kind of stuff. But Lord, may we not neglect to be reminded that you were born to die. And may we live our lives, Lord, in light of that reality. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.